Hey, everybody. Welcome back to another episode of the Bolton E-Bikes podcast. I have a pretty awesome guest on today. I am really excited to hear a little bit more about his background and how he got into exactly what he does with electric bikes. So let's find out what uh, we can learn from Pushkar Fatek at Watt Wagons. Well, thanks for being on the podcast uh, today. We've been talking a lot lately <laughs> by phone. And uh, <laughs> I don't know, maybe two months ago, I'd never talked to you. So <laughs> things have, have changed quite a bit. But let's start at the, the beginning. Where did you first get interested in electric bikes? There's always a story of some sort. Oh, yeah, absolutely, Kyle. And thank you. Uh, hey, guys. Uh, uh, it's glad to be here on the podcast. Uh, Kyle and I, we, we've started uh, connecting over the past few weeks and months, actually, now. And um, it's a pleasure to be here. So my story, and I think I've shared that in different flavors or <laughs> over a period of time, my story was all about commuting and uh, my inability as a rider to, to have fun and go faster on, on a bicycle when I was commuting for work. And uh, every day when I would bike to work, you know, I, I actually got a good analog bike. This was back in 2012, 2013. And uh, it was an 11, 12-mile one-way commute to Boston downtown. And every time I would commute, I would see these lycra-clad people just zip past me. <laughs> <laughs> every time, I was like, what is going on? Uh, clearly, I'm not a strong rider. But I wanted to have fun. So uh, then I, I ended up you know, doing some research. I want to say the first quote-unquote e-bike I built was actually a friction drive, something that you could put on, you know, and, and then it rubs against the tires. I was, I, was, I was going through tires like every four or five weeks. and That's, that's funny because the very, very first project home-built thing I ever built, same kind of thing, like, you know, yeah. just something just rubbing right on the tire to make it go. So that's funny. Exactly, yeah. And, and I don't even remember what motor it was. Uh, it was like somebody had given like a kit to take your... Um, drill bit motor and convert it. It was like a very weird setup. And But anyway, uh, then uh, I uh, I was introduced to the world of the BBS HD and the Fang, and you could convert your bike, put it on the bottom bracket. So it started there. I rode that for another couple of years. And it's like, if you, if you watch the movie Martian, this guy's, you know, it's stuck on Mars and he has to go back to Earth. So my my goal was to build a bike that had the lowest amount of maintenance we could possibly do. So essentially, as soon as I got the bike, you know, it's eye trading through it, okay? It needed a, a different size chain. I wanted to go fast, so it needed a bigger sprocket. I was tired of cleaning the chain, so I went to a hub. Uh, so it was, it was eye trading through all these problems. And then I finally got it to a point where then I used to have one failure of chain every 300 or 350 miles, give or take. Right, which is for me, for that kind of riding was pretty awesome. And then I said, okay, I think I know all the components. I think this is great. If it's fairly reliable, I think it is predictably reliable for me. Let's take the next step and, and build something that I'm going to ride for the next 5,000, 6,000 miles. Uh, we had just sold our car. Uh, so I was like, yeah, you know, let's build something automotive grade. You know, think about cars. They go 10,000 miles, need minimal maintenance. And did you sell the car for another reason, or did you sell it because you were just riding your bike all the time and you just didn't need it? That, that's a good point. Yeah. So, so we, we actually ended up having twins. So we wanted to sell our smaller car, get a bigger car, but they were not big enough to go in it. 
So eventually, I mean, we were, we were waiting for a van to come in. There was like a four or five month period where uh, we just had like a single small sedan. I feel like anybody who has started an e-bike company at some point has done that, <laughs> myself included. You know, you go down to, you got two people that need to travel to work or take kids to school or whatever, but you go down to one car and one person's on a bike all the time. And honestly, it was a lot of fun. <laughs> so I understand. And that's what it was, right? So um, it's a long-winded story. Uh, ultimately, I, I ended up building something of my own. My very, very first kind of a formal e-bike was say, with a Bafang uh, Ultra Motor. I, I got it from China. I think I paid like fourteen or $1,600 at that point in time to get it imported and paid the customs duties and did a custom frame. And, and when I built it, it was just completely eye-opening for me, right? It was not the speed of it, but moving from a cadence sensor to a torque sensor, having something that was super reliable, and that really was a big one for me. It was actually a slightly longer tail bike uh, because I wanted the stability. I was not interested in you know bombing down hills or something. Just literally pavement commuting, bicycle commuting. First month out, I was I was riding along the Charles River, going to work. I stopped at the bicycle intersection. Uh, near Harvard Square on the way. And this other guy with a, with a fantastic bike at that point in time, Stromer, stopped by. Like, literally, stopped, we stopped right at that light. And when we took off, I, I actually beat him by by a few yards, like, right off the bat. And I was like, <laughs> what the hell is that? I want it. So I was like, yeah, I built it myself. And he was so surprised. And he was like, you built it? I said, yeah. So he said, will you build one for me and my, my, uh, my significant other? And I was like, absolutely. Right. And, and that's actually how we got started. So I actually sold my bike. He, he paid me, I want to say at that point in time, uh, uh, like two grand up front to get all the stuff. <laughs> and I was like, yeah, this, this sounds cool. Let me, let me build five. So that's interesting because Stromer is not an inexpensive bicycle. Uh, Correct. They're, you know, I've seen them in person uh, at the Monterey show recently. I know people who have them and love them. Uh, but they're fairly expensive. So it's interesting to hear somebody who had a Stromer, which is kind of like at the higher end of the market, especially at the time, I assume this was all happening, to see what you had and be like, I want that. <laughs> what, what is that? Yeah, yeah, exactly. exactly. So for me, that was kind of a validation, Kyle, because it told me that I was on the right track, that we had the right material, we had the right components to, to make something that people wanted. And that's really what we want to evoke. Like when people watch or people see or ride a Watt Wagon seat bike, we want to evoke that kind of feeling within them. Uh, that, yeah, I, I want it. <laughs> I, I may not need it, but I want but it. you want it. So <laughs> now, were you thinking of doing something business-wise with e-bikes when you built yours? Or was it you just built it strictly for you? And then that guy said, well, you build one. And you were like, yeah, I don't see why not. Let's do it. That's exactly right, yeah. Okay. So, so we, we did that. And that's how we got started. I formed the company in 2018. When I first launched, you know, not a single person bought it. Right? I, mean, I literally had five pieces. I didn't sell a single one. And that's because I realized I was not, it was not like a formal thing. It, I just literally registered a random domain. I put it up. But uh, then I realized that people really wanted the components I put in on my bike, which was a fairly high-end version. So I had a roll-up, I had the belt drive, I had a great engine, I had uh, ergon grips. So all those things 
once I put them on, of course the price went up. But then obviously at that price point, because we're a direct consumer, there wasn't anything close to that. And as I mentioned earlier, the closest one was like a Stromer or at that point, I think a recent wheeler, right around a 10K mark in 2018, 2017, 2018 price points. So, so at that seven grand, it was, it was amazing. And obviously what we wanted to do was to further reinforce the reliability of those bikes. So we ended up uh, setting the world record on, uh, on our bikes in, in Nova Scotia with where we did uh, 400 miles in 24 hours in under a dollar of electricity. And, and that really, and that's a stock bike. You know, we're not doing anything to it. So really, you build it, you uh, wheel it out, do 400 miles. The only thing that we did was charge the batteries every, I want to say, 40 miles or so. That's it. Now, tell me a little bit more about that world record. Was it a single rider? Like, were you on a test track? Were they on the road? I, I'm really curious to hear about that. Absolutely, yeah. So, so it was funny. So, I, I work with, uh, uh, you may know him, so Ravi Kimbaya, he, he actually already has another record on, on his name. Yeah, I want to say he did like 5,000 miles in 30 days or something on a stromer, believe it or not, before us. So, uh, there was a track on in, in Halifax, that we rented, uh, the, we had to actually get the GPS guys, so the geo positioning guys actually come in, track it, give us the elevation, give us the distances. We had to submit that paperwork. So, okay, this is actually how much it is every time you go around the bend once. And then we had to time it. So absolutely, it was, it was very formal. We had to basically have order trails across the board, uh, time it, double timers and so on and so forth. And then yes, a single rider for the whole, uh, 24 hours. So kudos to Ravi. I mean, he, he definitely, you know. <laughs> That's hard to do. <laughs> right. Stay on a bike for 24 <laughs> Now, was he stopping to charge the battery or were you, were you swapping batteries when he stopped so he could just keep going? Absolutely, yeah. So we, we were swapping. So I, I, I carried like three, four batteries. And, and what is interesting is with batteries, we started at 7 a.m. and during the day, it gets super hot. So the battery actually charge rate decreases. So that's why we had multiple batteries. So we couldn't really charge when they were hot. We had to keep them in the shade. So it's interesting. I mean, all those learnings uh, as we go along are important. And we've tried to kind of put that back onto our bike. Uh, we are very open about the specs of the bikes, what the bike is, bikes are capable of. And that is where I think we start to set ourselves apart. It's not that we are building a great bike. We're building a great bike, but we're also telling you uh, or our riders, you know, what it can actually do. And, and, and stick within the specs, right? That any machine, we need to know what the machine is capable of. Awesome, awesome. I know before you set the world record, I don't know if anybody else set it in between, but at one point it was like, it was like 170 some miles or something like that on an e-bike in 24 hours. And I was like, why is it so low? <laughs> I mean, you can, there's guys pedaling bikes without a motor on it going three times that distance in 24 hours. Oh, so. definitely, yeah, yeah. <laughs> and, and this is not just, guys, actually, you're right. I, I believe the record for this is, uh, I want to say, analog bikes are probably about 700, 800 miles across multiple riders or something like that. It's like insanity. Yeah, I, I think an individual rider, I want to I say it's either in the five or maybe over 600 miles in a, in a day. Which is is crazy. I mean, th those are the top athletes, you know, everything else. And I'm sure if you grab one of those guys and put them on an e-bike, you'd get even better results. But I assume the gentleman you're using is not like a pro Tour de France cyclist. <laughs> so, I mean, he's definitely good. I mean, don't get me wrong. But yeah, I mean, he's nowhere close to yeah those. You know, he's more uh, 
closer to, to where we are as far as just an average guy that likes to ride bikes, you know. And to see that he can go 400 miles in a day, I think that says something about what e-bikes can do. Absolutely, yeah. And kind of, I think this is something that I think you probably also realized right around that time, that e-bikes are not just here to stay, but rather they're, they are actually changing the way we think about transportation. They're changing the way we think about having fun. Uh, and more importantly, it's, it's not just a, a lifestyle choice. It's, it's so much fun that you don't necessarily have to make it a choice anymore. It's just, I'm having fun. Right? That, that, that's not what I can say about a lot of other stuff. You know, it's, I'm having fun every time I go on a bike. No, I, I say that every single time. The, the number one pe- reason people buy e-bikes is not commuting. It's not you know, trying to save money from driving their car. They may do those things after they buy it, but the number one reason they buy it is because they saw one, they rode it, and they were like, whoa, this is a ton of fun. I got to have one of these. And then they use it for commuting or going to the grocery store. Like, because it's fun to go to the grocery store on your e-bike. <laughs> no, I, I think we're we're on the definitely on the same same page there. So it's really interesting to see what it's doing for, like you said, just changing the way people travel around. And I would say short distances, but showing that people can go hundreds of miles shows that you can go further. And I th- I think people will over time just keep going further and further with them. So we'll see what happens with that. Yeah, yeah. I mean, and you, you, you kind of, you know, hinting at a couple of other bikes that we, we just <laughs> launched about distances. And that is really where, where the industry is going. That's where people are going. So I think the industry is going where the people are going. And, and people want to do more. We have customers, and I'm sure you do as well, where they, they come in, they actually literally tell us, I've sold my car. I want complete electric stuff, right? I want an e-bike. I want... I want to do cargo, I want to take my kids <laughs> to school, I want to do my groceries, I want to go for bike packing, and that's it. It's, it's, uh, it's that, that's the level at which people are committing. It reminds me of the, of the days, and I, I don't know if you remember, but when the, the Toyota Priuses had first come out, this was, I would say, 99 or 2000, it, it, the, people were like, uh, remember, people had terms like hypermiling, you know, not breaking <laughs> at all. <laughs> yeah. So it almost reminds me of that kind of. I, I think we are we are a little bit past that when it comes to e-bikes. But uh, back in 2014, 2015, 2016, I, I think that's where we were. Like you know, battery tech was at a certain level. NiCad was the king. People were just switching to lithium-ion. It was just uh, fantastic. I mean, it, it just it was amazing. I think with some uh, hyper miling techniques, we can uh, improve upon those e-bike world records. But for the average riding, you just you don't need to. The battery technology is good enough that you can just not worry about it. You can just ride it however you want. So that's great. Now, I got to ask about controllers because there's one thing really unique you do with a lot of your bikes that nobody really does the way you're doing it. So I want to know how you got into that. And because that to me is, is something really interesting. We definitely got to cover so tell me about things like the Archon X1 controller. Like, how did you come up with that? Where did that start? So, uh, so thank you. I, I think that, that, that's absolutely, uh, you know, one of our distinctive advantages. Uh, when you go with Volkswagens, you're not only getting the most powerful motor, but you're getting a controller that completely changes the way you feel the bike. 
So this was something we discovered right around, this was actually during the world record run. So as we were doing, as, as Robbie was doing the laps, one of the things we were constantly noticing was with the Bafang Ultra at that point in time, and even now with their stock controller, if you're constant with your pedal cadence, technically you should be at the same speed, assuming there is no elevation change, nothing else, right? So it's literally a flat track, you're just going around the band. But that was actually not the case. So if you look at his graph, and I think he's posted that on, on a couple of forums, you see that his his cadence rate actually fluctuates even even on a single lap sometimes, very common. And and his speed does too. So you're like, this makes no sense. Like, you know, the assess should be constant. And so that that led us to led me to to do a deeper dive and I realized that controllers that are on existing motors. So obviously for the past year or so, a lot of the motors have since upgraded their tech. But back in 2016, uh, 2017, a lot of these controllers were built on older chipsets where the sampling frequency, which means how often is it checking, how far along you've pedaled, how much torque you've applied, that would be around, like I want to say, 300 hertz or so, 300 times a second, which is great. Right around that time, Bosch had just come out with their Gen 3 motors. And Bosch Gen 3, I want to say, was right around 4,000 hertz, which is fantastic, right? So Gen 3 was such a big step up from Gen 2. Just a huge difference, like you said, in the sampling rate. Yeah. You know, 300 versus 4,000. I mean, it's over 10 times the amount of data going in. So that's interesting. That was kind of interesting. And when I showed that, I was like, man, the, the feel of this bike is so good. But of course, being Bosch, they don't allow you to do a whole lot of other things. For example, they will limit the power output. And, and uh, typically, uh, if you're in the Northeast, like like we are, mid-drives can get you somewhere. But if you're trying to climb Mount Washington, if you're trying to do some more uh, off-road stuff, you're going to go uphill for a rider who's not fit, like me, that motor is just not enough. And it, it's loud, it's whiny. And that's the nature of all smaller motors. The example I would give is, if you look at... Uh, well, let's look at a Prius, right? If you have a Prius and a Porsche right next to each other, both bikes, both cars can reach, let's say, 100 miles per hour. But at 100 miles per hour, or between the 60 to 100, the Prius is grunting, right? It's, it's, it's a smaller motor. It's going, <laughs> I have a Prius. It's an uphill commute all the way to work, whether I'm riding a bike or I'm driving. So here I am going up at, on the highway, you know, freeway speeds. And yeah, it's, it always sounds like it's working really, really hard to go like 65. I, I know exactly what you're talking about. It can do it just fine. It's perfectly happy with it, but it, it doesn't sound like it's having fun with it, but it does it. That's right. Yeah. So, so all these motors uh, at that point in time, uh, whether you pick a Bosch or at that point a Yamaha was popular, they're all smaller motors and they're good for what they are, but they're really not built for... Anything more than maybe, you know, maybe five degree incline at a respectable speed. They're going to be loud and whiny just because it's a smaller motor. So obviously the Bafang Ultra has come along and the stator size, the actual motor size is like double of what a, what a Bosch does. So that may be silent. Obviously it's a little bit more noisy on the, on the lower end. Again, I'm giving the Porsche example. If you're going under 15 miles per hour, a Porsche has very, you know, growling <laughs> sound. People love that sound. Don't get me wrong. But, uh, but at higher speed, it kind of tapers off and it's very quiet. So, so that's what you see with the Bafang. So I definitely thought that, you know, that the Ultra is, is really the right motor, but it needs that smoothness. And for smoothness, we have to increase the sampling rate. So that was obviously one revelation. The second thing is obviously the, the, the smoothness, that's great. 
smoothness means how does the assist kick in as you start pedaling? So obviously we wanted something that would have had a higher sampling rate that would give you constant assist, which means that because it's, it's checking nine, in our case, we ended up having a controller which does nine kilohertz, so 9,000 times a second, which is nearly double of what at that point in time that Bosch was doing. So, so that was one. The other thing obviously is when you are at standard pedal cadence, it, it provides you constant assist, which is another big thing. The last one is we actually made a decision to not go with the, uh, and this will get a little bit technical, uh, with the square wave. So let me back up a little bit. So controllers uh, typically come in two, broadly two kind of categories. One is your traditional older square wave, which means it's sampling. How is it sampling? It is turning on the sensor for a split second, turning it off. Turning it on, so it's like a square wave, right? So it's doing 300 times a second, which is great, but you can't really turn on and turn off something more than a certain amount. So at that point in time, you actually have to go to a continuous controller, which is a sine wave controller, which is always monitoring, and it is at different levels of current, uh, uh, right? So that, so we actually switch to a sine wave controller, and I'll again make an analogy where you know on cars, uh, the moment you go to direct fuel injected type thingies, you're never giving the fuel, stopping for the carburetor, and then going right. So it's like some one of those carburetors is always firing. So think about it like that. So your car actually becomes a little bit more efficient just because you've changed the way the engine is pushing the thrust. So that's basically the core difference between sine wave and, and a square wave. And just by logic there, we become more efficient. So it turns out that our controllers, when we launched them, they were around 15 to 20% more efficient just because of the way they were sampling. And I think that's something worth clarifying. If you can take a controller and make it 15, 20% more efficient, that's literally 15, 20% more range without putting on a bigger battery or adding more weight to the bike. I mean, to me, that's huge. I went into this in detail several months back trying to figure out, all right, how efficient actually are e-bikes? And if we want to increase range or if we want to one day make it so you could actually power them with solar or you could just have, you know, just all the different things. I just looked at every possible scenario. It's like, you know, I, I think one of the things we're missing is the efficiency. If we increase efficiency of every component across the board, we could make bikes go further and be lighter than what they are today, which you're already doing. So obviously that's one of the reasons I, uh, I called you because I was like, hmm, this, this guy knows a few things <laughs> about these motors. I need to talk to him. And of course, uh, Kyle, just to, just to stretch it a little bit more, right? I mean, we, we are already working on the next generation of our controller, hopefully in the next uh, 12 to 18 months, where we will add another kind of layer of efficiency because uh, the next frontier, and, and that's not just us, it's where even electric vehicles or cars are going, just to give you like a sneak peek. So what happens is when you are charging your EV, in this case a bike or, or a car, you're converting electricity into you know DC, so AC to DC. So the battery's charged quick. Now the battery has is, is 60 volts, or in our case, fully fully charged is 58.8, and then it's powering the motor. The motor is stepping down or stepping up, depending on the wattage. So for example, a 60 volt motor, 60 volt battery, it has to step up and provide 80 amps or 40 amps of current to get to 2400 watts, right? So there's some sort of a power transformer which is inside the motor, which is really doing all that 
power thing. So there's technologies out there right now which basically we can put on the controller where we can increase the efficiency of that step up or step down uh, by another 10, 10 to 12 percent. And the good part about that is um, as you increase that efficiency, guess what's going to happen? You are not dumping that remaining 15 percent as heat. Especially uh. all your motors get hot, right? I mean, if you're riding them hard, they get hot. They get hot because this power thing is so, is literally taking, uh, and I remember, Kyle, we, we talked about that yesterday. Let's say you have a, <laughs> a 2,500 watt uh, power pushing into the motor. The motor is actually just using 80% of that. You know, the remaining 400 watts worth of power are just being dumped as heat. Yeah, and I, I was thinking of like in my head, like a three, 400 watt heater being on your bike. Yeah. And, and when you have a bike that powerful, like you said, a couple thousand watts or 2,500 watts with some of these other brands of motors and, and things people are doing, that's literally what you have, which is yeah. is crazy. I mean, 400 watt hours is the size of s- some batteries on some name brand bikes. <laughs> yeah, that's right. Absolutely right. Yeah. I mean, so, so you're basically in, in, your, in your commute, uh, if, you, if you commute like 100 miles, you're basically wasting heat worth another 20 miles. Like just heat, like, you know, going in the air, not doing anything. So, so clearly there are different frontiers that we have to conquer. And it has to be across the chain. It can't be just on the motor. It has to be on the battery pack. It has to be on the motor. It has to be on the charger. We just need to get better at that. Obviously, you know, with bleeding edge tech, it does take a little bit of time in testing, but all these technologies in some form actually exist today. And we think that we can bring them to, to our riders over the next, you know, 12 to 18 months, hopefully. Awesome. I know we're seeing it in the electric car industry. I mean, I've seen Tesla push out updates, over-the-air software updates that change how the controller and the motor and everything works to increase the range of the car. So they're like, oh, guess what? You just got another 10 miles on your car because we figured out a better way to make it run. And the bikes, I feel like, you're working on it, but I feel like they're not there to that same level yet. They're trailing behind by a few years, I feel like. When you look at the actual efficiency numbers you know, of a Bafang motor, you know, it might be 80% or 85% on paper at best, but that's only at a certain wattage level, at a certain speed. You know, if you go towards the other, you know, the low end or the high end, you know, sometimes they're dropping in, you know, to the 60% efficiency rating, which means you're losing a ton of power, like you said, just to heat. It's just not propelling you forward. And, and that's just not just a Bafang motor, right? Pretty much any e-bike motor right now. <laughs> yeah, most of them are yeah, like oh, that. Yeah. Right? yeah. So I would hate to, you know, <laughs> dump on Bafang for that. It, it, that that's no, that's no, industry standard. Yeah, and, and yeah, exactly. I'm just I'm just picking that as an example. You know, there, yeah, yeah. it's across the board like that. And and I have most of my bikes have Bafang motors on them, and I'm very happy with their performance and and the way they work, the reliability. So uh, not talking down on them at all, <laughs> other than other no, no, than I, I get it, yeah. other than to say that yeah, we we have uh, room for improvement. Why are you why why are you saying this about Bafang? Like, that's not cool. <laughs> but, that's okay. No, no. I, I love the Bafang motors. We're going we're gonna to keep using them. But looking forward, I see, like you are, here's where bikes are going to improve. And like you said, the next generation, they're going to just keep getting better and better, which I'm really excited about. I mean, seeing a bike you know, today that might have 40 miles of range and a few years from now with that same battery pack and that same weight overall, 
it might have 50 or 60 miles of range without increasing the battery technology. Because I think that's where most people are focusing is, oh, we have to have these new tech batteries to get more range. Well, yes, that will help too. That's just, that's going to be on top of that. But uh, that's just a piece of the puzzle. You're spot on about that, Cassius. In fact, what, what I almost think is if, if you look at the landscape of where EVs are going, because the, and I'm using cars as, as a kind of a example again, the cars are so simple relatively. You know, the drivetrain is so simple. It's just a motor, you're powering the battery and it's done. And then you have a controller that basically sort of changes the way the power is fed to the motor. It's just a simple system. It has a battery, the motor, and the controller. Here comes along a company, for example, like a Tesla. And what, what are they doing now? You can actually consider the bike, the, the, the car itself, as very modular. Uh, at some point, you can swap the motor. At some point, you can swap the battery. At some point, you can swap the controller. So you're no longer tied to the same car you bought in 2015. At 20, in 2020, you probably have the same car, but all these upgraded components on the same chassis. Because chassis are actually designed to last for, what, a million miles. So. Why can't we just swap the motors and the controllers and the battery pack and just get more lights out of them? And that's really another kind of level of the next generation of, of e-bikes. And we do that already, right? So when you buy a Volkswagen, you don't necessarily have to buy a brand new bike if you're in the market. If we have a brand new bike or a brand new frame that you like, you can literally, we, we ensure that everything is backward compatible. You can actually take that and just buy a brand new frame and battery from us, swap the motor, bring all the older parts that you had, because these are high-end parts anyways, and you have a brand new bike. So we are taking that to the extreme, and we have a couple of customers who have actually since done that. And I'm really happy that you know not only are we thinking about efficiencies in the drivetrain, the batteries, and the motors, the controllers, but we're really thinking about how riders think. You know? I've already invested in good parts. Help me get the next bike. Give me credit for what I currently have. Swap the frame, swap the battery, what have you. So that that's kind of, you know, we call it the commuter companion program for what it's worth. <laughs> <laughs> awesome. So tell everybody, I already kind of know what your bikes are like. I am very excited to have some arriving to me soon. So I will share that later at some point when I actually have them. <laughs> but uh, Tell people what kind of bikes you actually have or, or what you're selling right now. And also, of course, what you're working on, because you've got uh, some new stuff you just recently announced that uh, I'm looking forward to as well. Absolutely, yeah. So we currently have a, a couple of bikes. We, uh, a, a few months ago, like, I won't say a month ago now, we sort of simplified and tried to focus on a smaller portfolio of bikes. So today we have a off-road full suspension e-bike, which we call the Hydra. It's based on an open model frame, and we put in a lot of tweaks into it to make it a, a great machine. Uh, your standard spec in 27 and a half, you go to 29ers, and so on and so forth. The other bike that we're working on, and which is on our website today, is a future-looking bike, uh, but actually before I go there. So the other bike that we sell is the Titanium Ultimate Commuter Pro, uh, which is you know near and dear to me. That's the bike I ride every day. It's designed with an internal gear hub, belt drive, train uh, options, uh, going up to, you know, a kilowatt hour of battery pack on board. So great for commuting. So those are the core two bikes that we are focusing on today. And what we've just done over the past month now, actually, and Kyle, you, you and I, we spoke about this. We think that to get people to ride these bikes more, we have to bring 
the next generation of form factors to our riders. The bike obviously looks good, but we've noticed that the, uh, the traditional scrambler style form factor is very popular. It's popular not because it, it's distinctive, it's popular because it's also very practical. Uh, so, if you, so we just launched the cross tour, which is in our minds, really where e-bikes are going. But I'll talk about the form factor first. So the cross tour is a scrambler, a traditional scrambler style form factor. Uh, you will see, um, I'm say Onyx is one, uh, Super 73 has something similar in terms of form factor. And then you have, you know, a, a lot of, you know, entry level models. Yeah, there's so just a bunch of other ones right. popping up <laughs> all over the yeah, place. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah. I even so, saw at the recent show, uh, Hurley, the clothing company has a scrambler looking electric bike. So <laughs> who knows what else yeah. is going to pop up? <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah. So, so everybody's jumping on it, but. When, when I looked at that use case, we realized that one of the big advantages scramblers have is that they are easy to get on and easy to get off. It is so great to have that level of comfort on a scrambler style bike. So you don't have to be, uh, when you come at a stop sign, you can put both your feet down, right? A lot of people want that stability or that predictability of riding the bike. Uh, it has a longer saddle typically, so you can push back or you can come up closer. So traditionally, if you want to increase or decrease your reach, it helps a lot. Overall, it has fatter tires, so you can actually uh, go on the road, paved roads. You can go along with the traffic. Uh, these are meant for those types of applications. And some people actually use them in lieu of lower power motorcycles, which is like a big, big universe. So if you're a college-going kid, if you are you know, uh, getting into motorcycling, you want that kind of a feel and balance. You can still ride your bike and you can also leverage this form factor for almost like a thumb throttle or a twist throttle to have a mopedish style use case, but have a bike that could perform. Yeah, I so, personally have a motorcycle. It's a Honda, it's a 650 street bike, and it's very intimidating to most people, I think. Like, the size, the weight, I mean, you know, we're talking hundreds of pounds, you know, for something like that. Lots of power, noisy. I love it. I always have <laughs> things like that. I've been into cars and airplanes and motorcycles and all sorts of things over my life. But I feel like we're seeing more and more of these, like you said, like it's almost like a low powered motorcycle, but it's got pedals. So you can pedal it if you want to. And I feel like it's this new category of vehicle and nobody knows what to call it yet. And I think we just are still figuring out regulations for e-bikes and what you're talking about. I feel like there's one day, this is just my speculation, one day there's going to be a new category that is faster than an e-bike and not a motorcycle. And I don't know what that's going to be yet, but I think it it will happen because they already exist and people are buying them and using them for that purpose. And the legality of it in some states and some areas is, is questionable at times with what certain people do. I mean, I've, I'm sure you've seen the videos of, you know, people riding Suron electric dirt bikes, you know, that are 5,000 watts and they're riding them down the street and, uh, and they get pulled over by a cop and they're like, oh, it's, it's only 750 watts. And then the cops, not knowing the laws, are like, oh, well, then you need to ride it in the bike lane which is not how the law works at all. <laughs> but that's the level of understanding we have for that type of vehicle. Yeah, so this, this new one you're working on, I, I feel like it's one of those. 
what is it? I, I don't know yet, but I think, I think we're just going to see more and more of them. And eventually people are going to be like, oh, this is a whole new category of electric vehicle we didn't even think about. That's so. right. Yeah. And you're spot on. You're, you're absolutely spot on. There is this category of bikes or vehicles that are not motorcycles, not as fast. They're not going 60, 70 miles per hour. Right. But they're also not going 10 miles per hour. <laughs> yeah. And, and, and provide you enough um, speed that you can go with the traffic in cities and, and feel safe has a little bit more weight. So traditionally, e-bikes tend to be, at least the ones that we make, traditionally around 50, 60 pounds. That's too light, right? If a car goes by you, uh, even at 20 miles per hour, you can, you can just get blown away at 60 pounds. You know, it's just in sway. So you need something a little bit more heavier, a little bit more stable, squatter, and, and allow you to, to do that. In fact, that is exactly what our inspiration was. So we looked around, and then, uh, uh, as you referred to earlier, Part of what Wattwagons is doing is not only are we developing or introducing a product in that same category, we are trying to push that category to where the category should be. What I mean by that is in today, in 2021, going on to 2022, it's not enough to just have a scrambler style. We have to plan for riders to use this as their daily commuter or daily vehicle, which means it needs to be more robust. The, the carrying capacity should be higher. The motor needs to be a little bit more powerful because if you're going with the traffic, you've got to, you know, got to have that power to, to catch up. The weight is a big issue. It cannot be super lightweight. It just, you're not looking for that. You're looking for a little bit higher uh, weight. And uh, most importantly, you need to be able to control it better. So if you look at today's kind of scramblers, most of them end up having battery on the top tube, right? So the top Yeah, they're doing top. it for, for looks. <laughs> yeah, it's a 10, 12 sometimes a 15-pound battery pack. Imagine trying to balance that, and uh, it, it just completely crushes your handling and it completely you know, disorients you when you're riding. So one of the things is we, we brought on our cross-door, which is the, our version of the Scrambler, we bought the battery down right above the motor, literally right above the motor. So the CG is so low, it is very well balanced. Uh, so that's one of the things that we, we try to do. And that's different from like mounting the, so if you look at the traditional electric bicycle or some of the other larger uh, scramblers, they, they mount the battery on the front, on the down tube, if you will. Right. They don't mount it at the bottom. So we wanted to mount it at the bottom because it is really CG at that weight. Yeah, it is really important. So that's one. The second is now, now that you have that top tube space, how can we use that intelligently? And how can we add to that experience? So. This is where we think that having an EV charging capability is an absolute must because most of our riders are actually going to go on longer rides or commuting. If you go into downtown or you go to like a convenience store and all these places that now have these car chargers popping up. Yeah. And they're everywhere now. I've got, I'm on my second electric car and it's, you know, I am amazed how many chargers there are available now compared to when I had my first electric car, which is about almost five years ago now, actually, it's grown tremendously. Now it's like, oh, there's, there's chargers everywhere. I don't have to worry about going anywhere, not being able to charge. And I live in a small town in a rural area, and I don't worry about it. In a rural area, my first electric car had 80 miles of range. I was definitely an early adopter of that, obviously, but, but now it's just like a no-brainer. And I, and I think uh, bikes just make perfect sense for you to do that. So I was really excited to see that because nobody's done it before. 
unfortunately, I thought about doing something like that the last few years, and I never did it. So you beat me to the punch. So, but that's okay. Yeah, I, that, that's what it is. So, so having that EV charging capability for us is big. So, so we've really launched, and, and that's how we are pushing the category. We think that the scrambler category absolutely needs to have those two things. Now, now that we have EV charging, EV charging means you know you have the option of actually having a bigger battery pack because you have all this fast charging capability. So we've actually upped our battery pack on the version on the cross store, the supercharged version, where you can get a two kilowatt hour battery pack. Uh, with an EV charger as standard. Even the home charger that we're giving will be an EV charger. So it's we, we, <laughs> we keep it consistent, you know? And, and that bike, if you're commuting, let's say, 20 miles a day, 10 miles to and 10 miles from, you need to charge that bike once a week, essentially, if you're using pedal assist. So the, the range is around 200 miles if you're averaging around 15 miles per hour, which is you know what your commuting speed is uh, in the city. And that's a game changer when it comes to use cases, the ability to have longer range, the ability to have lower cycles on the battery. And that has a domino effect on the reliability overall, right? So imagine every battery is built for, in today's tech, is built for, you know, with, with good charging capabilities for around, let's say, 700 cycles. But if you're charging once a week, 700 cycles is uh, a lot more miles. 700 weeks, if you will. A year being 50 weeks, give or take. So that's, you know, you're getting into territory where the battery pack is going to outlast <laughs> your use case by a mile. Yeah, that's awesome. And it's something I hadn't really considered that, yeah, if the battery's big enough, you don't have to charge every day. Or even if you do charge every day, you're just not going through a full cycle on the battery. Yeah, it's, it's going to last longer. Yeah, it's like 10, 12 years, 14 years for one charge a week completely changes the game. You know, now you're getting into territory where you can use that bike to ride 10,000, 20,000, 30,000 miles truly as an automobile. <laughs> and it's the small details that start to matter. Yeah. And I think one of the things that's most important about it, though, is that it's, it's still not an automobile the way we look at them today. It takes up far less space. It's very easy to use. Anybody can hop on it and ride it. And that's where I go back to kind of like the motorcycle being intimidating. Something like the cross tour you're talking about. I feel like anybody who knows how to ride a bicycle could comfortably hop on that and ride it. Not anybody can just hop on a motorcycle and ride it. There's other moving parts and pieces. There's weight. There's just other things that make it more challenging. And also there's this kind of a a safety factor that people are like, I don't want to go 65 miles an hour <laughs> on two wheels, but 30 miles an hour. Yeah, I'll, I'll do that. And that's, that's comfortable. Yeah, it's very, very interesting. So when uh, for the cross tour, because I know that's the, the newest thing, when are we going to see those? Yeah, so, so we've gone through the initial tests right now, the frames are in certification. Uh, we're trying to certify them for up to 400 pounds, which means traditionally you can have two riders, a rider and a pillion rider, to get that weight down, you know, uh, that's another use case. Or if you don't have that billion rider, then you, you probably are uh, carrying some cargo. So uh, so all those tests, so we're going through those. Hopefully, we're, we're targeting, you know, end of Jan, early Feb for the first set of production prototypes or pre-production prototypes to be done. Uh, and production is slated for end of March. So uh, hopefully by late, uh, mid to late spring is when we can, we can start shipping those. As, as you've seen on your side too, we are taking uh, uh, reservations for that right now. 
we think that it is going to be uh, not just a game changing, but actually a category changing when it comes to the use, when it comes to the flexibility, when it comes to the accessories that you can put on it. So very excited about the cross store. Awesome. I look forward to uh, getting my hands on one of those and getting to, to, to ride it around. <laughs> you bet I'll be doing that. Awesome. Uh, well, lots of exciting things. We could probably talk for, for days about everything, but I think people's minds will explode if we keep going <laughs> about all the different things that you've already covered. Yeah, my, my coffee is almost done either. So, <laughs> <laughs> Well, thank you very much for being on the podcast today, telling people about your background, about Watt Wagons. Uh, and what you're doing. Everybody else that's listening right now, just stay tuned for more information about Bolton e-bikes and Watt Wagons. So uh, excited again for some of the the new bikes that are coming. The Hydra is one that I'll have in my hands, along with another surprise that I haven't spoiled for everybody yet. We're leaving that under wraps uh, for the moment until it gets here, and I can kind of put out a video and show it off and be like, all right, here's something new that uh, that we've got which I know uh, people are already asking for something exactly like it, and we don't have it. <laughs> so well, that, that is what it is. So if people want to go check out the other bikes you've got, should they go to wattwagons.com? Yep. So you can go to wattwagons.com. Um, we have the links to Crosstour, the Hydra, the Helios, that's the upcoming bike also. Uh, but of course, uh, you can dig, also put the reservations down on, on your website, on Bolton bikes, or on wattwagons. Either way, it's fine. We absolutely appreciate that. Awesome. Well, sounds great. Uh, thank you very much for, for taking your time. I think this has been enlightening, not just for me, but definitely for everybody listening. Absolutely. Yeah. And Kyle, thanks for having me. Uh, thanks, everybody. Thanks for taking the time. <laughs> and uh, odds are we'll probably have you back again one day, I'm sure. Well, thank you, everybody, for listening to another episode of the Bolton E-Bikes podcast. Uh, again, if you are not on our newsletter for the podcast, make sure to go to ebikepodcast.com. Dot com, and that's where you can get emails when new episodes come out. And of course, like I said, if you want to check out any of those bikes, go to wattwagons.com. Uh, the cross tour is also on our website, so you can place a deposit uh, and reserve one at boltonebikes.com. And stay tuned for those other uh, sneak peeks, those other new bikes that are coming as well. Thanks again, and I will talk to you guys another Tuesday. Tuesday.